Hello, and welcome to the Reach or Miss Show, the podcast for the customer-focused entrepreneur, where Hayut Yogev speaks with entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs about reaching or missing the critical point of approaching the right customer with the right message at the right time and place. The point where business success starts. And here is your host, Hayut Yogev. Rich or Miss, episode 128. Hey, my riches, I'm Hayut, and I just love being here today. Today, I would like to invite you to a free masterclass I'm going to run during the coming two weeks about how should entrepreneurs create their social media presence and engagement in three practical steps. Because I found out from your questions and our discussions that using social media the right way is one of the three challenges that hold many of you from reaching your entrepreneurial business success. It's going to be a very fun and useful free live training. And I look forward to meeting you there. So go to reachyourmiss.com slash free training and sign up to my free masterclass. And now, I would like you to meet my incredible guest today that started her career on the Bell Labs. That labs that Alexander Bell started and became to be AT&T Labs. And then... After many years when she felt that AT&T is no longer the company she wants to be part of, she opened her own very successful entrepreneurial business. So let's welcome Deb Mills Schofield. Deborah Mills Schofield helps mid to large sized companies make strategic planning a verb. She is also a partner in an early-stage venture capital firm. Deb has written for Harvard Business Review and other venues, including her own blog, and has contributed to several books. Deb graduated from Brown University in three years and helped start the Cognitive Science Concentration. After graduation, she went to AT&T Bell Labs where her patent was one of the highest revenue-generating patents for AT&T and Lucent. She is on the advisory council of Brown University's engineering school and lectures at Brown. Deb also mentors students entrepreneurs of all types, advises in the Brown Design Workshop, and supports those involved in STEAM. She measures her success by her clients' success and their impact. Deborah Mills Caulfield, hi, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's a pleasure. We have so much to talk about. I am really looking to hear your story. And I just shared with my listeners what you've done until now. And I would like to ask you to share with us what are you doing and most passionate about today? And where are you heading? So what I'm most passionate about today, there are kind of two aspects. There's my work work, you know, the paying kind, if you will. <laughs> um, and so that's the working with mid to large size companies on where do they want to be in three to five years? How can we get there? 
trying to help encourage or enhance if they already have kind of a culture of innovation of thinking out of the box, thinking of the world differently, which to me starts with the customer or client or end user, depending on what words they use. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other part that I do is I mentor and advise students at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, where I went to school. Oh, And that's my form of continuing education. Dealing with these brilliant kids keeps me young, Mm -hmm. mentally, me learning, keeps me challenged. And if I can keep up with them, I have no problem keeping up with my client. What are you educating them for? What is the subject? Um, You know, basically STEAM, STEM kind of stuff in the arts. So my students are in engineering, in bio, in chem, history, in English, in education. There's all over. Totally across the board. Yeah. Um, Wow. So I mentor, advise, and I also sometimes, depending on my schedule, will teach. Um, But and then I get to cross pollinate. I get to introduce my clients to really cool kids, which brings in a Hmm. perspective. And I get to help my students find really interesting internships and jobs. So it's wow. it's a nice symbiotic relationship. I think it all it all works really well for me. Uh, it is, and it's also helping so many people both sides. I mean, it's doing really good for both sides. It's so important to find the right job for you. Mm-hmm. It it is. So that's what I do, and you know, I, it works great for me. I kind of have three tenants that I've lived my life by. Hmm. And I must give credit to my parents because part of the reason I live my life by it is because it's kind of how I was raised. Um, Hmm. Those three tenants apply to both my work, my personal life, my mentoring, kind of everything. And when you're talking about the three tenants, what what do you mean? So there's three kind of phrases. The first is not mine. It's by a Jewish theologian philosopher called Martin Buber. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. And he had and I'm going to paraphrase and simplify tremendously. So forgive me. Um, (laughs) We do. We thank you, actually. He had a phrase. In fact, the book is called I Thou. um, I it or I thou. And to me, that's rather fundamental for how you treat people and you think about your customers. So I it is I is I the person. And it is do I view that other person or you could even say nature as a function versus as a relationship. Hmm. Um, So if it's I, it, it's, you know, you're at the grocery store, there's a person there checking you out, you say hi, hello, whatever, but they're, they're the person checking you out. They're not a human being with issues and lives of their own. I, thou is where that other is a thou. They're not an object. They are a person with a relationship, with a life. Um, so it's like transactional or relational. And so to me, that's very key in how one views your customers internally or externally, because it's all about them. It's not about you, um, hmm. which seems. I'm smiling all the time because this is, of course, what I'm talking about all the time. And this is what this podcast is all about. So I think uh, that's the reason I'm so happy to hear that. But I, I think I've never heard it said so nicely. I, I'm not aware of this, Martin Buber. I've read a few things, but I'm not aware of this. And it's such a nice way to put it. Well, it's, um, it's a very short but dense book. And I just, I love Buber. Um, the second mm-hmm. part then follows from that, which is rush to discover, don't rush to solve. Um, and if you look at most mm-hmm. of the world, at least the Western world, 
whenever you see a problem, you immediately tend to go to try to fix it. You don't go to try to discover, well, why is that a problem? Well, why is that a problem? All the context constraints around it. You just want to go fix it without knowing probably all the things you should. And so it's getting yourself in a mindset of rushing to discover and learn as much as you can before you try to solve. And there probably are several solutions, not just one. And do you, um, do you manage to live by that? I try to. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know that I'm perfect at any of this, but, um, but I really work hard at trying to. Sometimes I think with my children, I'm probably more rushing to solve than rushing to discover when they yeah. have a problem. <laughs> We all want to fix everything for them. Right. Just right. to make a perfect world for them if we can. But also when they are very big, it doesn't change. No, I know. Yeah. But I do try with my clients and with my mentees, when there's an issue, I will just ask, because I was trained to as a kid, ask why, 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 why. Hmm. And then the last is, the last of the three is basically your entire life, your approach to things should be experiment, learn, apply, and iterate. So as I look at my life and my career, It's been a series of trying things, experimenting. Some have lasted, you know, five, 10 years. Learning from that, applying the learning and doing, doing another experiment. Mm. And that's kind of how I view life is one constant set of experimenting, learning, applying and iterating. Right. I'm more interested in, I am insatiably curious, which is a good thing and also can be a frustrating thing. <laughs> um, But I just really love learning and then analyzing and putting dots together so you can see a lot of disparate things. How do you bring them together? And what are the underlying micro patterns? Um, and the way you do that, to me, is the more diverse stuff you learn, the more interesting it is to discover patterns. Because maybe it's not as diverse as it may seem. Hmm. Um, yeah, so for me, it's the sense of accomplishment other than, you know, providing for your family and seeing your customers grow and seeing the students grow isn't so much have I built something huge, great, like a, you know, icon to me, but more of have I learned a lot and been able to share that learning? Because that's just more fun to me, at least. I love it. I love it. It sounds like you've got a lot of patience, isn't it? You are just looking at the world as some great place to discover, to share, to meet. Yeah, but I'm, I've gotten more patient as I've gotten older. <laughs> um, so I will, I guess the way I would phrase that is, I've always kind of had this view, but when I was younger, I wanted to hurry up the learning. <laughs> and um, I love that. So what are you doing today? What is your career? And actually, tell us a few words about where you started and uh, what was this journey. In short sentences, what was this journey until today? So it started with um, growing up in the Northeast, New Jersey and New York City. I went to Brown. I then went to Bell Labs, yeah. which was the think tank for AT&T. Okay. So it's... Think about Google X, which is like the basic research and lab part of Google. Yeah. Um, it was way cooler and better than Google X. You think so? Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I love to well, hear that. I haven't been there, but I love to hear that. Well, Bell Labs no longer exists. Okay. 
So when AT&T was broken up by the United States government yeah. on antitrust, um, they couldn't keep pouring the money they had. You know, there wasn't limitless funds when you're no longer a monopoly. Yeah. Um, and so Bell Labs does not exist anymore, but it was a very unique place. So I started there in the early 80s. Um, it started in 1920-something yeah. from Alexander Graham Bell. Hmm. Um, Alexander Graham Bell, who started... The telephone company in the U.S. started Bell Labs. He started Bell Labs back at the turn of the previous century. The transistor, solar cells, cellular technology. I mean, it's, it's a patent factory. Well, it was the labs for AT&T. He started AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph. So Bell Labs was to AT&T what Google X is to Google. Mm, wow. And it was a magical, I didn't realize at the time what a charmed environment it really was. Um, it was a magical environment where you just, I didn't sense any chauvinism, any anything. I was 20 when I graduated from college and went there, so I was very young. Yeah. Um, and I just got paid to play and experiment with ideas and stuff, <laughs> and I got a patent for things. It was just, it was a marvelous place to do what I'd been raised to do in a Dunnett Brown, ask questions and, you know, run experiments and learn and apply and iterate. Wow. Uh, and then I, I was going to marry a guy that had been in basic research at Bell Labs and was going to move to Ohio. Okay. So AT&T or Bell Labs moved me to AT&T corporate. Yeah. They did a corporate relocation so I wouldn't quit. So they paid for my move to Ohio. Hmm. And then flew me out to New Jersey every week, and I was in Europe and Asia every month. Wow. Um, so I did a lot of traveling. So I had incredible bosses and mentors who were all male and all totally invested in my career and pushed me to get, hmm. you know, I got to the level I did because I was good. I mean, granted, but they also recognized that and did whatever it took to support me. That's fantastic to hear. You know, in 1988, my boss paid to move me to Ohio, flew me back and forth every week in Europe and Asia, set me up with an office at home. I mean, they just did whatever it took for me not to quit. Mm, it sounds terrific. Then we had children and I didn't want to travel anymore. So I worked from home, um, stopped managing people, which was fine with me. Um, and again, you know, they just, they let me work from home and do everything virtually. It was Everything so I wouldn't quit. But finally, around 2001 or so, after my second child, our daughter, was born, it was just too depressing to work at AT&T. They were not going in the right direction. Hmm. And I really wanted to quit. Yeah. And my husband said, my husband was a physics professor at a college out there. Okay. And he said, you know, why don't you just quit and start your own business doing strategy and innovation? Because that's what you've been doing. Hmm. And of course, my reaction is, okay, we have a four-year-old, a one-year-old, a house in where we lived, and then we just had bought this house in Maine. Yeah. And I'm the Maine breadwinner, and I'm supposed to quit? <laughs> um, and he really encouraged me, which was typical of him, but not typical of our generation at that time. That's correct. And so, you know, I went out on my own. And by using my Brown University network in Northeast Ohio and all that, started my consulting practice yeah. doing strategy innovation. So you are dealing with strategy innovation. You are also addressing the, the technological part of that? 
whatever it can be. Um, I define strategy and innovation, good ones as business models, technology, discovering new markets. It's it's pretty open ended, and sometimes it's not technology. Alex Osterwalder, who wrote the book Value Proposition Design and Business Model Generation, and I helped him with those. He's a good friend, so we see this yeah. very much eye to eye. But the whole concept of looking at your business model as a way to innovate is so underutilized. I have to understand what you just said. What do you mean about business model has to do with development or with technology? Well, it's so at a very simplistic level. When Apple went from you um, went to iTunes, yeah. that whole that whole combination of the iPod, iTunes the great and easy user interface, all that stuff was a different business model. It was no new technology. Okay. You know, MP3 players have been around. Hmm. And a lot of times it's recombining what exists. To me, invention is like what you get a patent for. Innovation is taking inventions and putting them together in new and different ways that let you actually provide a service or a product that helps someone and makes you money, lets you capture value. Hmm. I love this differentiation between innovation and invention. So many times we are confused in between the two of them. So I love it. And uh, you started your own business and that's what you have been doing until now? That's what I have been doing um, up until now and I plan to continue doing. And then over many years, I always was involved at Brown and in the last, as my kids have gotten older. So My oldest just graduated from college and my youngest just went. Oh. Um, so for the last about eight years or so, I have been very active up on campus at Brown. And I go up once a month during the academic year for about a week and mentor, advise, and do independent studies and teach. And that's how I keep myself knowing what's happening in the real world with the younger generation, besides my own kids, mm-hmm. and keep myself. It's like, it's like grad school, permanent grad school. Yeah. I keep going up and learning. And you're also bringing something new to the students because you're bringing the business part, the real business world into their world, isn't it? I hope so. <laughs> and they know it, it's, it's a mutually beneficial, wonderful, joyful thing. Hmm. Who are your customers today? So my customers are, when I say mid to large size, they're usually about $100 million in revenue turnover and over. Um, when I was at AT&T, I always dealt with the multi-billion dollar clients, and so I like them a little smaller. Um, <laughs> okay. Sometimes they're at the lower end, but they can be, they range from professional services firms to manufacturing to engineering firms. It's kind of, as long as it's morally legitimate, I don't really care. <laughs> but mission and purpose and values have to be very core to who they are. Um, they're generally privately held and privately meaning not private equity held. Okay. Um, I do have a client that last year took private equity money. And so I'm kind of struggling with that right now. <laughs> okay. I'm not a fan of private equity. It's complicated. Yeah. I also um, have been a partner in a venture capital firm. So I was a partner in a VC firm that did early stage investing and we've now closed the fund. Um, so the clients range from all sorts of sectors, which makes it more interesting for me. Yeah. Then like just manufacturing. And um, I mean, my rule, basically, I ask my clients to match 10% of my fee and give that away to improve lives in their community. And, you know, no schmucks. <laughs> What do you mean? 
I won't work with um, with people that have hidden agendas or they're in it for themselves versus in it for something bigger for the people that they're serving internally and externally. You are choosing that in advance or this is your mission to help the company to become? I choose it someone in advance. So the way I get clients is through my existing clients. Okay. And what that does is, um, I mean, if you're the CEO of a mid to large size company, you're not going to Google strategic planning and pick someone that way. That's right. You know, you're going to ask um, people you know and trust who they use and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And so that lets me have a degree of pre-screening because if you've dealt with me, you know who I am, how I am, what I'm like, and you also know who I probably can work well with and I can't. And so it's just a way to kind of pre-screen customers mm. is by letting other customers pick them for you. Yeah, it sounds great. And then they also probably know what they're up to. Right. Deb, I would like to ask you, you're an entrepreneur. Your husband encouraged you to do that. And of course, you are an entrepreneur by heart because that's the way you were raised. <laughs> And I want to ask you, what would be your best advice to any of our listeners, to any entrepreneur regarding the customer focus or customer approach? What would you tell them? The most important thing because it's also the main reason that companies fail of any size is, I'll go back to Boober's iVal. Hmm. It is not about you. Usually you come up with an idea because it's something you want, and that's great. But does anybody else really want it, and do they really care? Hmm. It is all about the customer. And as hard as it is, because you think you have, well, you do have a preconceived notion of how you want to solve a problem, as best you can, as hard as it is, Take that out of your mind and approach your business from the customer's perspective, given their constraints, their context, which can change by time of day, by weather, by venue, by so many things, and really walk in their shoes from their world, not what you want it to be or what you think it should be, and then solve that problem for them with them. In a way that doesn't create more problems. <laughs> yeah, that's important. I love that. But that's key. If, if you don't fully understand it from your customer's perspective, not your own preconceived notions, your odds of success drop dramatically. Hmm. That's correct. And I'll say it directly. It's the money that you are looking at is in the pockets of your customers. So you must understand how they think. Right. I agree with that so much. And I want to ask you, I know you've got successes. We started to talk about it, but we'll talk about it in a minute. And um, I guess it was both in AT&T as well as with um, your entrepreneurship or private company. But I would like first to ask you to tell us about your biggest, most critical failure with customers or one of the most critical, the one that affected your entrepreneurial or your business journey the most? I think for me, it was a client where, and this is where I've got to, I always have to watch it. My heart overruled my head. <laughs> so um, they were really good people. They were not capable of running the company the way it should have been run. And I kept just kind of sticking with them where I, I really became more aiding and abetting and not helpful because 
-hmm. I kept thinking, well, one more thing and maybe they'll finally get it. And what I needed to do was walk away. Mm -hmm. And I've learned from that, that trust my gut feeling that sometimes they're, they can be wonderful people, but they don't have what it takes to get a company to the next level. And it's not for lack of desire, it's lack of competency. And, you know, you have to separate those. And so those, there are times I need to walk away. There are times I fired clients because it just wasn't going to work. And there are times where, it's, it, I mean, it wasn't going to work because of them or it wasn't going to work because of me. Hmm. And then times we're just totally not a good match, even though we thought we might be. Hmm. And that's hard. So what it's helped me do is refine um, the criteria that I use in, in assessing whether or not it's going to work. And can you say that today you have more successes in matching to each other? Yes. Beautiful. Definitely. Now I would like to hear your story about your greatest, most significant success as a result of the right customer focus. So something you did right about approaching your customers. Well, I think, you know, for me, it's always a both because we're working together. So I have a client I have been working with for 15 years. Wow. And they were about their manufacturing. They were about 400 million when we started. They're about one and a half billion now. Wow. Probably 60 some percent of that's organic growth in a commodity industry. And they're just they ooze innovation out of their pores. It is they're just the coolest people. They think differently than anybody else in their industry. Um, and that's why they've been able to grow in a commoditized market. And, you know, this year was a big effort on getting the next big ideas out there and changing the market. And it's just become it's um, we listen to each other. I really listen to them. I no holes barred. I'll call them on the table on stuff. I'll call pardon the phrase, but bullshit on them. <laughs> um, I am from New York, so I do have that attitude. <laughs> yeah. um, in just a great trusting relationship where they've been able to pull the best out of me and I've been able to pull the best out of them. Beautiful. Hmm. What, 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 I think what a pleasure you've been in both and I've been in both as well. What a pleasure it is to, um, to help somebody else to gain their share of success. And that's kind of my view is, you know, I don't have a big firm. I don't want to manage people. I don't want to deal with that. My definition of success and accomplishment is when you get a company like that to grow, they're hiring more people, they're paying them better, they have benefits. So it affects them. And their families it affects the communities it's just um, mm. they and my students are a proxy I can reach more people that way than I feel I could if I spent more of my time trying to build up a company in my name that I don't really care about because I care about the impact on my clients and my students not you know that I die and there's this big consulting company left It's a beautiful way to, to look at it, to look at the impact that your clients are doing, not only the impact that you are managing to do. I love that. Well, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Deb, can you recommend the best or most effective technological or digital tool that related to customer focus, marketing or sales? However, I'm not looking for the last shiniest tool in the endless list. I'm looking to hear about a tool that really helps you to succeed. You know, honestly, I don't have, there isn't one. There's a combination of them, but I don't really have one technological tool. And some of that is because it depends on the customer. So I will use their system. I mean, you know, we use email, texting, that kind of stuff for communication. Um, but I'll work more with what their system is. 
because that's what they've got to deal with every day rather than what I would like their system to be. So you don't have any tool to do in magic for you? No. <laughs> I think you're the first one. I don't think it's the tool that does the magic. <laughs> I do agree. But sometimes that... I also don't think it's my role. You know, when you're dealing with a corporation and they have a corporate IT infrastructure, I want to use what they're used to. If I don't think it's the best, I can tell them. But, you know, when you're a $800 million or $1 billion company, I'm not changing their corporate IT infrastructure. Sure. So I have to work with what they have that will help them sustain um, execution of a strategic plan. Love it. You know, there are many factors that affect each one's success. However, I believe that for anyone, each one of us, there is one factor that really makes it for us. And I'm sure there is one factor that really made it for you. And I want to ask you, what is your one key success factor? Martin Buber's eye bow. <laughs> I love that. Staying grounded in that is what fundamentally does it. How? How do you use it daily? Because it keeps me thinking about the other not about me. It's not all about me. I must ask you, would you say that your kids are up to Martin Buber's perception as well? Do you think you managed to, to enlarge this community of people that are looking at it that way? I think I have. Have they always had that attitude? No. Sometimes as little kids, you're very, you know, eye-focused. But yes, definitely. And it's been interesting and joyful to watch Both my children, our children, because it isn't just me. My husband, obviously, has been an incredible hmm. husband and father, really adopt this view of I thou and the rushing to discover. Um, and it's just, it's a joy and thrill to watch them as they're growing up in their various phases do this. Wow. So, very blessed. And now I finally came to my last question. And my final question is my mountain question. And as I always tell my listeners, I've been imagining this journey of marketing in the mind of the customer, the consumer, like climbing a mountain for years. And at some moment, I started to ask my guests whether they ever climbed the mountain. And this is what I'm asking you, whether you ever climbed the mountain or wish to climb a mountain, or do you have any relationships with mountains at all? The mountain question would be the um, going out on my own. Yeah. When I quit AT&T and had to go out on my own, that was one heck of a mountain to climb. Hmm. And just tell our listeners, what would be the best way to connect with you for anyone that would like to be in touch with you? Probably to go to my website, which um, is mylastname.com, or you can also go to findingbluelobsters.com. <laughs> And at the bottom somewhere, it tells you, you know, how to get in touch with me. You can leave a message there. That's great. And you're also quite active in social media. And we will have all the links in the show notes. Deb, I would like to thank you so much for this really enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you for asking. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. So, bye-bye. Bye. And for you, our listeners, until the next time, it all goes down to this. You either reach or miss. Keep reaching your goals and vision. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Reach or Miss Show, the podcast for the customer-focused entrepreneur. You can find all the information, links, and resources that was mentioned at the show in our website, reachormiss.com. See you next week.